I'd like you to turn, uh, please, to Matthew chapter 5, and we're going to continue on in the series on the Sermon on the Mount. And um, as you turn to that, um, I'd like to take a moment and read what Jesus has to say. Matthew 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to shine on the evil and on the good, he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Lord, we want to be like you. Uh, this is not a program. This is not just some command, though there are commands embedded here. This is a, this is a way to live a life well-lived. And we've just seen two testimonies this morning of a life being well lived for the cause of Christ. Lord, would you draw us to be like the Father and to see our enemies and to see others differently. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As, uh, as we look at, at this passage this morning, um, Loving your enemy, that's what Jesus is talking about. And um, I, 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 I did not realize until I started preparing for this, this series, and when Seth asked me to preach this, I told him, I said, look, I'll, I'll preach it if you'll pray for me that God will take the hypocrisy away from my own life on this. This is a tough passage. And we got, we got all kinds of things that start running through our heads about, okay, well, how do I deal with enemies and well, what about injustice and stuff like that? Listen, um, we live in a culture that is full of rage and hatred. The world has always been that way. And I did not realize until I started studying this that the North Star, if you will, of what Jesus is saying in this sermon, in, in Matthew 5, it's the Great Commission. He was getting his people and us ready to see what the Father loves, what is a priority to the Father. And, and so when we come into Christ, you notice he talks about our Father, your Father, your Father in heaven. So we are part of this forever family and a forever relationship. So Jesus, 
when he spoke in John 15, and I want to read very quickly from John 15, because that was the eve of his arrest and his crucifixion coming the next day. And so in those parting final words, you, can, you know he's weighing his words very, very carefully because he knows he only has minutes, maybe a couple hours left with them. Listen to what Jesus says in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hates you you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because, listen to this, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So we know that the world experiences hatred and anger because they have a warped view of what justice is and, and, and what identity to align with. And so as Jesus is talking to the Father, and he's talking to us about the Father, and he's talking to his disciples, and he says, listen, they're going to hate you but don't take it just personally. It started long before you arrived on the scene following me. They hated me first. And so as he lays this out to them, he's preparing them to think differently about why they're living life and what they're going to do with the precious minutes that the Father has given them until the day comes when they die and they go to be in his presence. Because people are in the image of God, their hearts cry for justice. I have seen that over my lifetime. And I've seen that in many different countries where there have been incredibly vile and violent injustices committed. And in every case, it really does come down to this. How does one respond to an enemy? What Jesus has laid out here in verses 43 to 48 is the beginning of a counterintuitive moment on this planet. The hate does have to stop, but the hate is not going to stop in a human way. He's saying that we need to see what the Father is committed to in sending the Son, Jesus. What we're finding here, as he says, your righteousness has to be greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees. He's saying that you are the ones who the Father is putting his fingerprints upon your heart and ours. In Christ Jesus, you have the Father's fingerprints on your heart. And you cannot and must not be the same as the world. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen to Messiah Jesus. Hanging on the cross, Luke 23, 32, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here he is in the throes of, uh, of mocking, in the throes of the most incredibly violent uh, torture and death, 
And that's what he prays. That's your Savior. That's mine. Or take uh, Stephen. If that was what Jesus did in starting a counterintuitive moment and how to respond to enemies, then here's Stephen, who is the second Christian martyr to be killed for his faith, in which he says in Acts 7:60, falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Excuse my English, but that ain't normal. And how does one come from being what we all are naturally, self-protective and focused on our own agendas, to that? And so, before we go to look at this passage, notice what Jesus says here, and this is actually the sixth Time he has said this, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. He's quoting his contemporaries, the scuttlebutt that's out there, what's being taught, the opinions, and we've been hearing about this in this series. But I, I, I really wondered, and this was kind of an agony for me, where did this come from? I, I get human nature. Well, listen to what the Father said in the Old Testament. Now, the Father speaks to the impenitent throughout the Old Testament, through Moses, through the prophets, through the Psalms. He's got a lot to say. And there are times when he judges in, in wrath, and there are times when he is extremely patient. But listen to what the Father said, for instance, when he made a, made a covenant with Abraham, and way back in the book of Genesis, somewhere around maybe two. 2000 BC, somewhere in that range. The father was patient with the Canaanites for 400 years. Abraham is sitting in the land of the Canaanites, and God just makes a covenant with him and says, I'm going to give you this land, and we're going to kick these people out, and you're going to take this land. It is going to be your inheritance, but you're not going to get the inheritance yet. Why? He says that his descendants will go down into Egypt for 400 years and be oppressed. And he says, you will come back in the fourth generation, which is 400 years later, because, quote, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The father was patient for 400 years. And Old Testament, liberal Old Testament scholars have accused God of being a violent and unjust God because Israel went and removed them from the land. Well, God says, oh, to the contrary, I was extremely patient while they brutalized people for 400 years. Or take, for instance, what the Father gives us in the book of Leviticus, the Mosaic law, he says to Israel, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. And he says, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yahweh. Okay, I get that. But what do you do? I get the idea that I love my neighbor, but what do I do with somebody who burns my house down? 
or harms me or my family and commits a vile injustice against me. Take Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Israel's about to cross over the Jordan River, and Deuteronomy means second statement of the law. He restates to a new generation what he said to Moses originally, and he says, the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and your enemies who persecuted you as they were pursuing the kingdom promise. Take King David. <laughs> King David in Psalm 139 says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, as he struggled with the continual onslaught of violent enemies who tried to wipe out the, the nation of Israel, the promised people of God. He says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. He cries out in his agony on the one hand, I hate what they stand for, but I want you to search my heart. Well, this is the inspired word of God. What do you do with that? And as I struggle, but it doesn't stop there with just the Old Testament. Even in the New Testament, there is a longing for justice. And we're not talking irrational hatred here. We're talking the establishment of righteousness. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, and I know I've read this in a past sermon, but I want to say it again in this context. It's not just Old Testament how the Father dealt with the establishment of righteousness and enemies, but it's also in the New Testament. Here are people that have been martyred for the sake of their witness for Jesus by a bloody world system. And so the martyrs who are in heaven, listen to what they're saying. And he opened the fifth seal. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. You see, they had witnessed for Christ. That's what Jesus was saying. If they hate you, it's because they hated me first. And so the world is just simply pouring out their hatred of God upon the heads of the people of God. And so here are those people who are in heaven, their bodies left back on earth, brutalized by martyrdom, and it says, here's what they cried out. Hear this. In heaven, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They aren't on the earth anymore. They're saying, God, when are you going to get justice for us? And... Uh, Listen to the answer they get. They were each given a white robe. No doubt that white robe represents the righteousness of Jesus. And they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete. That's not the answer they wanted to hear, but the answer they were given. Now, my question is, why? And what I saw as I worked through Jesus' inaugural address in Matthew 5, the kickoff, if you will, of his public ministry at its height, 
I like, I, let me just kind of say it this way. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy and hate, I'm sorry, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, Jesus is talking about his contemporaries who are saying, here, we'll give you a theological reason to hate people. And Jesus is correcting that. And that was a misinterpretation of what I have just read to you from the Old Testament. So what then is it? Um, originally, I kind of wanted to title this sermon, um, Don't Believe Everything You Hear, But Do Believe What I Tell You. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, but then he goes on to say, but I say to you. So he makes a sharp distinction between the opinions that are out there. And we know I've got the Qumran, when they uncovered the Qumran um, place in, in Israel, when they excavated that, they found all kinds of writings. And in those writings, they mention hating your enemy. So you can, we can even see from archaeology that indeed this was the scuttlebutt of the, lo the local opinions. People in that day and in ours are stuck in the quagmire of human notions that are wrong. So how can we get unstuck out of this hate speech cycle of humanity that was going on in Jesus' day and it's going on in ours as well. Wokeness is nothing new. And so we see that the, the hate speech, which speech is simply comes out of, out of the human heart, let's at least ask the question, who are my enemies? Who are your enemies? And the answer comes in many forms. Probably the most simple is, who doesn't love you? <laughs> huh? Who doesn't love you? Um, it can be a Samaritan as it was in Jesus' day. It can be someone from another culture, another country who does things that you don't like. Maybe they're from a different religion like Islam where they badmouth Christianity and, and yes, they kill Christians on occasion. I've just been hearing over the last couple weeks, a uh, country I worked in for, go, went there for several years. Nigeria is on the precipice of a civil war, and they're killing more Christians there than anywhere else in the world. Um, it, it can be, it, it, it's someone who opposes you, but makes a point to pressure you. They use resources, they snub you, they insult you. They ignore you, they diminish you, they slander you, say untrue things behind your back. There's many regards the people you meet daily. There's possibly an enemy as someone who lives under your roof today. Or 
An enemy may be somebody who used to live under your roof, but left and lives somewhere else, and you're hurt. An enemy can be those who disagree with your core values, who go out of our way to impose their version of what the values ought to be. And sometimes they use the club of government and law to bring that about. It is personal. It is verbal. It is physical at times. It is economic at times. It involves theft at times. It may lead to war. That's what's going on right now with Russia. It can involve crime. It can happen on the job. Enemies come in many places and many different ways. Can I ask you, do you only hang with people who are your friends? <laughs> because that's what Jesus singles out here. He says even the Gentiles, they collect around each other and they find friendship. He says, but they're not Christians. He says, well, how are you any better than them if you only hang with your friends? Ah, but the one big question is, it's one thing as Jesus is referring back to the Old Testament to say, love your neighbor. What do I do with somebody who goes out of the way to burn down my house or harm my family? What do I do with that? Can I ask you the question when it says here, Jesus says, the Father makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Can I ask you, is the Father shining his son on the unrighteous today? Guys in your neighborhood or our city or our country, what do we learn from the Father's heart? Here's the question Jesus is raising. How can you then, and I'm going to reverse it, how can you then not be like him and follow Jesus at the same time? It's not possible. Jesus is saying we don't have a right to hate people in our hearts. Not right now, but the question is why. In fact, when you come to Christ, you begin to realize we scream a lot about, I want justice, but I remember R.C. Sproul years ago saying, be careful when you ask for justice because if you get it and if it comes on your head, you don't ever want to ask for God's justice on your head. You'd like it on somebody else's, but not yours. I have, more in, I have more in common with Adam than I do with Jesus Christ in my natural state. So what's the difference? Why is it that the car is stuck in the mud? And how do we get out of it? <laughs> I remember a few years ago being in Uganda and we had just seen a lion out there in the field and it was kind of during the rainy season. We're driving away 
and the car got stuck in the mud. And we looked at each other and said, we got to get out of this car, push it out of the mud, and we got a lion behind us just a stone's throw away. It felt a little weird. Listen, how can we get out of the quagmire? If human solutions aren't working, and if the answer is look at your Father in heaven who causes the rain and the sunshine on people who hate him, how then do I respond to this as a Christian? And the answer is, we recognize people are saying the same stuff today that they said in his day. So here's how we start to get the car out of the quagmire. We begin with the you are statements of Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 5.13, we've heard it over the last several weeks, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. To say you are is to not say you, you work to become. You are. In Christ, you have been forgiven and given his gift of righteousness. And since that's your identity, now that you know who you are, and now that you know he is your father in heaven, and now you know how your father in heaven deals every day, every second, in giving blessing even to the most wicked. Putin is enjoying the sunshine. And he had a nice meal today. So we know that the Father in the present age is doing something rather special. So where do we find the answer to this? Again, six times you have heard it said, listen to what happened when Jesus comes back to his hometown and he begins to, to announce as he's handed the scroll, he says, the spirit of Yahweh is upon me. He's reading this in the, in the, the, um, the synagogue, and he says, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Not talking about just fiscal poverty. To proclaim liberty to the captives. He's saying, I'm the Messiah, and I am setting free people who are bound by Satan. He says, I am bringing the recovery of sight to the blind, people who can't see. He says, I am here to, quote, proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor. And he stopped reading. And what we don't oftentimes understand is he stopped in the middle of the Hebrew sentence, quoting the Old Testament he handed the scroll back and he said, I say to you today in your hearing, these words have been fulfilled. And the place blew up. My brothers and sisters, what does this have to do with what Jesus is talking about? He is telling us that the Great Commission is the context. The Father has sent the Son, and Jesus made a big deal out of this. Everything Jesus said that the Father does, I do. I see what the Father's doing, I do it. I do it, it perfectly in every person I talk to, every minute I spend, every event that I am involved in. It is the Father's will. 
And so that's why he said, if you see me, you see the Father. (laughs) And so Jesus then goes on to say, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the Father, for he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. So Jesus says, I command you, the Greek there is a command verb, present tense verb that means continually do this. Continually I command you, be loving. Loving who? He says love, and then he says, and pray. I command you, present tense, be continually praying. Loving and praying. Praying what? Who pair in behalf of, it is the language, the technical language of intercession. He says, you've got enemies. I am now telling you, since I have brought the favorable year of Yahweh, the Great Commission is kicked off. God is sending the good news to the world. He says, I am the one who says to you, you start praying. And you start showing love, love not feel good about them kind of love, but love that says, I will choose to respond different to you than I would naturally otherwise respond. He says, you are to pray for them. And it's hard to intercede in prayer. I some days hate some of the leaders of our country in my heart. When I look at the injustice they promote, but I'm going to tell you, God rebuked me in this sermon. I am praying and interceding for them. And their good is not that they will prosper in their wickedness, but that they will prosper by being brought to brokenness and repentance and turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if they don't, we know how the story ends. So here's very simply, if you don't remember anything else, it's this. This is a hilarious, indiscriminate love that the Father is expressing upon the world in the Great Commission, and you and I get to be a part of that. Is that cool or what? (laughs) Come on, it's not easy. Her name was Liuba Gavaneskaya. She was captured and put in jail for years and tortured every day for being a Christian. And the guy who beat her every night, just uh, he was trying to extract from her information about her other Christian contacts, and she never gave them up. And he was getting frustrated, and she was weary, getting beat every night and suffering. And listen to what she said. She said, a voice told her concerning this man, he is so much like you. You are both caught in the same drama of life. Stalin, the chief communist dictator, killed thousands of people God's children, but he also killed 10,000 officers of his secret police, and he says, you and your torturers are actually passing through the same veil of tears. And so she had decided, I will respond differently to him when he comes in tonight to start beating me. So he came in, and you know what she did? She smiled at him. (laughs) And he looked at her 
And he said, why do you smile? She said, I don't see you the way a mirror would show you right now. I see you surely were once a beautiful, innocent child. And she said, we are the same age. We could have been playmates. She said, I see you as I hope you will be. There was once a persecutor worse than you named Saul of Tarsus. And the torturer put his whip down. And she then asked a last question. What burden so weighs on you that it drives you to the madness of beating a person who has done you no harm? He had no answer. The torturer left that night a changed man. That's how you love your enemy. And it's not just demand injustice. I will finish with just a couple illustrations further. There's a guy named Deshazar. I recently was had the privilege of being invited to join in Washington, D.C. with a gentleman named Bill Norberg, who's the last surviving, um, the last surviving naval person who fought in the Battle of Midway. He served all through World War II before Pearl Harbor on the USS Enterprise. And I had the privilege of joining with him in a wreath laying the 80th anniversary of that war, which turned the entire war with Japan. It changed everything from that point forward. And um, while I was with him, um, because the admirals were all after the ceremony was over, we told him, we said, Bill, we'll leave you alone because he rode back with us and we'll leave you alone. We'll just go over here and then we'll all link up and head back home. So my friend John Barber and I went into the Naval Museum, which was right there on the other side of where all the admirals were standing. And we're walking around and my friend uh, John as we're looking at the history of the Naval Museum, there was a man standing there dressed white. He looked exactly like our admirals who were outside. Yeah. And so John, John and I stand there. John walks across the room and sticks his hand out to him and shakes the hand of this gentleman and says, thank you for your service. Where are you serving? And the man corrected him. And he said, I'm not in the American Navy. I'm in the Chinese Navy. And in, a, in an instant, you felt the tension from him and from where we're standing. And without missing a beat, John says, it's so nice to meet you. He looked him right in the eyes. He said, God bless you. And I'm standing right there as they're looking at each other, and I noticed he just kind of did that. He never 
expected with all the bad press about China to have somebody not only thank him, but say, God bless you to him. And as we walked away, I told John, I said, you know, you never know who that man was, and you don't know what that's going to do to him because it rocked him back. Love your enemies may be as simple as what appears to be a chance moment like that, but loving your enemies is where we get the opportunity to see the gospel, the Great Commission, bring about change. Let's pray.